We'll hear argument next in case 08-6261, Robertson versus United States, Exrell Watson. Ms. Frankfurt. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents the question whether, under our Constitution, the power to prosecute criminal contempt in a Federal Court rests solely with the Sovereign. The United States now agrees that the fact that a criminal offense may only be prosecuted by the Sovereign is a foundational premise of our Constitution. Because Mr. Robertson was prosecuted for criminal contempt in a private right of action, his prosecution was unconstitutional, a nullity in our view, and his convictions must be vacated. Ms. Watson defends the lower court's ruling that private He didn't make that argument, though. I mean, his, as I recall, his only complaint was that he had been uh, promised uh, that, that he, wouldn't be, uh, he wouldn't be prosecuted. And uh, that was his only complaint below. His complaint below was that he had a plea agreement with the United States and that the only lawful or constitutional way he could have been prosecuted was in an action brought by the United States, that the local statute didn't authorize a private right of action and that the Constitution could not He made made the constitutional claim uh, below? He said below that that a private right of action was neither lawful under the local statute nor constitutional, and the parties responded that it was, and the lower court held it's authorized by local statute, it's constitutional. In fact, this was a private right of action prosecuted by Ms. Watson on her own behalf, and therefore your plea agreement fails. We had never argued if it was actually her prosecuting that there was uh, that she was bound by the plea agreement. We argued it can't be her prosecuting. It can't be under the Constitution. It can't be under the local statute. And if it's the United States, then we're entitled to the benefit of the plea agreement we had with the United States. The Ms. Watson defends the lower court ruling that a private right of criminal action is constitutional but really has found, excuse me, mounted very little attack on our uh, constitutional argument that the Constitution contemplates that crimes are public wrongs brought on behalf of the sovereign. Excuse me, we have yes. plenty of plea agreements, jurisprudence, that say if the Southern District of New York prosecutes someone and they sign a plea agreement and say, um, we're not going to prosecute you for further crimes, we read that to mean that the Southern District of New York won't prosecute you for further crimes. We don't read it that no other government agency is bound, who has jurisdiction over that criminal activity, that they are equally bound. So why isn't this case the same? Assuming that um, you're making a broad statement that this has to be brought in the name of the government, assuming that's correct, Does that mean that — why does that mean that both the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Attorney General's Office, which appear to be two different entities over uh, enforcing two different sets of law, why would both be bound? Well, it's it's important to clarify because there is — there is a lack of — it is not parallel to the federal system. So even assuming, and I, and I believe there's a circuit split that the Second Circuit says when the Southern District signs, it's the Southern District only, and the Third, Fourth, Eighth, and Ninth view it differently when something reads as broadly as this is, which is the government. In the District of Columbia. Hey, excuse me. It, it, it's not just the Southern District. It's also what? The state? No. 
No, I believe in the Second Circuit they might read uh, something signed by the Southern District as not binding the Eastern District, for instance. But in the District of Columbia, only the United States attorney prosecutes criminal offenses of the type that occurred here. There's a, there's a bit of a red herring here from this plea form. Because this is a plea form that's used in Superior Court both in traffic offenses, which are the type of offenses that the District of Columbia prosecutes, and in criminal offenses. And, and the crossouts are just to conform the plea form so that if you cross out D.C., it reads United States versus John Robertson, which is how felony It did puzzle me. I, I was wondering if there's, if there's coordinate jurisdiction. Can, can the district uh, uh, prosecute for crimes uh, that, uh, that the attorney general can prosecute for? There is, uh, there is not coordinate jurisdiction. There's some uh, some provisions for consent if there are multiple offenses and one goes to one and one goes to the other. But all the offenses we're talking about here are United States offenses. It was the United States' position below that only the United States prosecutes contempt. It was actually the Attorney General's position in the lower court that it could not, representing the District of Columbia, prosecute contempt. So that if we're construing the party to be the United States, as the Solicitor General now asks, you know, Young and Providence Journal really apply, which is then the prosecuting entity is the United States, whether represented by a private prosecutor or by a United States attorney. That's a very different situation than um, different offices or because the District of Columbia could not be prosecuting this case representing — the Attorney General couldn't be prosecuting this case representing the District of Columbia government. That's not — in the picture as an option. The, the, the case, if it's prosecuted by a sovereign, is prosecuted by the United States. And the only argument that the Solicitor General is now making is that that wouldn't bind a private prosecutor representing the United States, as happened in Young. We have a local case that says when a private prosecutor in a criminal contempt case signs a plea agreement, on behalf of the United States, it's a binding plea agreement and binds the United States. So the crossouts on the plea form, I believe, are a bit of a red herring. The crossout on the caption just makes it read United States versus John Robertson in a felony, which is the only way felonies can be prosecuted. The crossout on the signature line just makes it read the United States attorney, who's the only one who can sign such a form in a felony case. And it doesn't define a particular prosecuting entity between federal and state or between two different federal jurisdictions that have concurrent jurisdiction over, let's say, a mail fraud or something Is like this that. law unique to the district or do other states? I mean, the problem that they're trying to get a handle on is domestic violence. And the prosecutors are busy uh, prosecuting drug crimes and the rest. So the district's solution is we will uh, allow the abused person to initiate this criminal contempt. It, are there other states that have the same procedure? As I, the, the same procedure is the question of how that's defined. If the question is whether there are other states that have a wholly private right of action where the person is construed as bringing it on her own behalf, not on behalf of the sovereign, in a criminal case, we have seen nothing. Uh, like I mean, how, however you describe it in practical terms, are there other places that say um, abused person, you can initiate this? 
and you can have your lawyer presented, whether it's on behalf of the State or but just the practical of how you go through the motions. Are there other states that allow the victim? Yes, there are other there are other states that allow um, the complainant to either bring it to the attention of the court in the form of a request for an order to show cause, and to actually prosecute as a private prosecutor. The way, let's say, in Young, they would have characterized a private prosecutor in criminal case. Because I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but my my recollection is that. Uh, Order to show cause for contempt uh, in the civil on the civil side occur frequently, and that allows a jail sentence in California. I think of five days, and this is all, this is civil for it because it's coercive. Now right. you're talking about something different. I take it. I am. I'm talking about criminal contempt. For instance, in the District of Columbia, before this case came down. There, we had an uh, opinion based on a lo- local legislature's determination that said a beneficiary of a civil protection order may initiate a criminal contempt proceeding and may act as private prosecutor the way um, in, in Young, this Court said as a matter of supervisory authorities, they didn't want interested parties. There are jurisdictions, I believe, that allow for interested parties to take that role. But the role is the role of the lawyer on behalf of the sovereign, sovereign, whichever sovereign it is, who is the ultimate party and who can knowledge. The states don't have the same uh, compulsion that uh, the federal government has, uh, which arises from the separation of powers. And uh, which which means that it is the executive that has the right to prosecute, and uh, states are not bound by such a thing, and they can perhaps allow private individuals to prosecute, whereas the only exception we have made from the from the chief executive's uh, authority to prosecute is Young, which is a very narrow exception, uh, dealing with uh, the court's ability to protect itself from. Uh, a contempt of its orders. That's and here the court did, had nothing to do with the appointment of this uh, private party, right? That's absolutely true. Our, in our view, to the extent there are any sort of exceptions from procedural rights or the normal process in contempt proceedings, they are narrowly tailored and governed by the doctrine of necessity. And that, and so while uh, Respondent's Council indicates, well, there are a lot of differences in contempt and just add one to this list, they make no attempt to ground that in the doctrine of necessity, which is really the only thing that, that justifies any sort of procedural difference in the contempt context. Am I right that the district has been following this procedure for quite some time? Yes. I, it, well, I guess it, it depends on what the question of what this procedure is. Well, the district where a private party initiates, uh, uh, the beneficiary of a, an order of this kind, initiates a contempt proceeding against a person who violates it and seeks a punishment for it, not just uh, uh, discontinuance. Yes. The, the district had a case um, where it said it believed itself not bound by the supervisory authority of Young, and it would allow interested parties to prosecute contempt in the domestic violence context only, not outside the domestic violence context. And it has had cases prosecuted um, in that fashion uh, since that time, which I believe was 1984. But it has — it was not until this case that the — 
issue arose because of the, the plea agreement, um, to suggest that that person was prosecuting in her own name and power, she was It doesn't seem to me that the plea agreement goes to the question of whether there's sort of an inherent violation of the Constitution by adopting this procedure at all. I, 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 I had trouble figuring out whether the plea agreement has any relevance to the kind of basic argument you're making. Well, we actually see two arguments, and maybe that's th that we're making, which may be part of the confusion. If this proceeding really was, as the lower court interpreted the low, lower court the lower court interpreted the local statute, and what occurred, and said this really was a private right of action brought by Ms. Watson on her own behalf, no government party initiated it, controlled it, and we believe that's constitutional. That's what the lower court said. If that's what occurred, then we believe this court could well say. That's unconstitutional. We, we defer to the lower court's view of what occurred pursuant to the local statute. This was a private right of action. The lower court told us so. And we don't think that the Constitution can tolerate such a thing. And therefore, like in Gompers, where a criminal penalty was imposed, Gompers versus Buck Stove, a criminal penalty was imposed in an action between private parties, that judgment must be set aside. She never had power to invoke the authority of the court in the first place. That's one way to view it. This Solicitor General — Or just to say the lower court was wrong. The lower court was wrong. On that premise. Well — We have another option once we say they were wrong on that premise to send it back and let them look at the second question, which is whether or not um, a private party can bring — an action in the name of the sovereign. Well, I think that the second way to view it, as, as I was going to say, is what the Solicitor General of the United States now agrees. They had thought below that it was constitutional, but they now agree that the Constitution cannot tolerate private criminal rights of action. And if, if right? that's true, they've been following an unconstitutional practice for about 25 years. Is that uh, right? I, I believe um, and nobody thought about it all this time. And certainly, certainly since, you know, since they made the argument to the lower courts. Um, because it's done many, many times, as I understand it, over the years. It was done many times, conceived. At, when, when the original, um, when, when the interested prosecutor decision was made, it was made on the same foundational premise as, as Young, which was, let's look and see if we're concerned about conflicts of interest. By the nature of asking the court asking the question of conflicts of interest, the court was thinking of, of the woman as representing the government. This wouldn't be allowed under Young. I mean, if it you made not. anything clear, it's you couldn't <laughs> appoint as a prosecutor the, an interested party. That's and true. here is the most interested party of all. That's true. It so, I mean, would don't, not don't, be. Don't, don't say that Young would have allowed it. No, 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 no. It certainly wouldn't be allowed under Young. But to finish my, my answer to, to Justice Sotomayor and Justice Stevens as to the second route, if this court, what the Solicitor General, I believe, is asking this court to do is to say it's not constitutional to have such an action brought on behalf of a private party, therefore construe it as an action brought on behalf of the sovereign. This court, if this court goes that route, as opposed to deferring to the way the lower court described it, rather said this must have been on behalf of the sovereign, the sovereign was the United States, then the question is whether the plea agreement barred it. 
The lower court said the plea agreement didn't bar it because it was Ms. Watson. Obviously, it didn't bar it. Ms. Watson is not the United States. But if, in fact, it was on behalf of the United States, then the question is, does the plea agreement bar? We th- think that the court does, does the Justice Department concede that uh, the sovereign here is the United States? Does the Justice Department concede I, I that there can't be a separate prosecutor from from the uh, assistant United States attorney, and that is the the prosecutor for the District of Columbia. I, I don't want to speak for the Justice Department, but I do. Believe you don't understand them to, to be saying that. I do believe that they, that they concede that the so, the relevant sovereign is the United States. Okay. Well, we can ask the government. Yes, but and and to. <laughs> But, but I believe that's what their brief said. They certainly said that below, and I believe that that's what they're saying here, because they're saying it's a prosecution on behalf of the United States. They've given five, Section 518 permission in this case because they believe that the United States is interested. Um, and so the District of Columbia's role, oddly enough, all the way through this proceeding, and then they withdrew at the uh, merit stage in this court, was they believed themselves representing the petitioner. They had never um, perceived themselves to be a public prosecutor, and they, in fact, said in the lower court that they had no authority to prosecute contempt in the District of Columbia. We agree with that. Have we, have we had cases that said that federal separation of powers principles are binding on territorial governments, for instance? You know, I, I, don't, I think that the question is — I don't think I, I disagree with with the government with the respondent that, that this court has said it hasn't. I think in, I think Springer appears to apply separation of powers principles. Um, I think that uh, Metropolitan Airport Authority uses Springer in a separation of powers, a constitutional separation of powers analysis. I think even if this court looks at, at Whalen, which involved D.C., it will see a separation of powers analysis applicable. Um, to the District of Columbia. Is D.C. Our, a territory? I don't think we're a territory, no. no. <laughs> we're, we're, um, you know, it's, it is Article One power that's being exercised. Our focus hasn't been entirely separation of powers, because in our view, you know, separation of powers is about the division of powers within government. Here the problem was that the, the there's no authority under the Constitution to give this power to prosecute crime, which has historically, way back when, been an attribute of sovereignty, and to take it entirely away from the sovereign at all, um, which is what, what the lower court finding was and what Ms. Watson now defends. But we see a long, long history in the common law, in the English common law, in our common law, um, and in our constitutional jurisprudence of criminal actions being public wrongs prosecuted on behalf of the sovereign um, and criminal contempt falling right within that even more so because it's a vindication of public authority um, and to the extent there are any deviations from due process or separation of powers principles, they're justified only by the doctrine of necessity. If the court has no further questions, I will reserve. My I, I have, the, have this question. Just again, I'm sort of trying to see the case in the broad, in the bro- broader sense. Supposing uh, uh, there's a civil lawsuit that's settled, and part of the settlement is a consent decree that would enjoin certain conduct, and the defendant then violates the decree and engages in the prohibited conduct. 
Are you saying that the only person who could uh, prosecute for contempt would be the sovereign? For criminal contempt? Yeah. Yes. Now, whether, whether in some situations um, a private prosecutor could be appointed to uh, represent the sovereign? Another question whether the lawyer for the, for the party who settlement, entered into the settlement could bring a contempt proceeding against the, the adversary who violated the settlement. On their own behalf? I don't, I don't believe so. Not a criminal contempt proceeding. Uh, I, I, we are drawing a, a fairly rigid distinction between who the lawyer is and who the lawyer represents. In our view, the party in a criminal action has to be the sovereign, the United States. Now, in the contempt context, there is a limited um, exception for appointment of private prosecutors when the executive is declining to prosecute and the judiciary needs to vindicate its authority. And if it's referred to the public prosecutor in the young situation and the public prosecutor has declined but the judiciary still needs to vindicate its authority, it can appoint a private attorney to represent the sovereign. But at root, it's the sovereign that's prosecuting, no matter who the lawyer is who's standing in the courtroom. And the problem in this case was the holding of the lower court who said that Ms. Watts, it was her case. The trial court said it was her case. The lawyer said, I can't control her. She gets to make all the decisions. What, what do you think of the best authority from this court for your basic proposition is? What is your strongest case? I believe the strongest case is Gompers versus Buck Stove that says it's as fundamentally, and I'm not quoting verbatim, but it's as fundamentally erroneous as if in a tort action of A or for battery of A versus B, a sentence of 12 months is imposed. Well, that's exactly what we have here is we have a sentence of 12 months imposed for an action that our lower court said was solely between private parties. You think Gompers is the best case? Yes, I do. And, and, and what is your position? Um, can, can you advise us? I know it's not in your case. If there is a plea bargain in the Southern District of New York, does it, does it bind, do you think, the prosecutor in the Eastern District? What's your pos- view of that proposition? I know it's not part of this case. Right. My view is this Court should go with the Third and Fourth Circuits who have spoken quite eloquently about the United States not being a bunch of separate fiefdoms, but that when the United States speaks, they speak for the government at large. That's different than a case in some of the cases that were cited where it says the United States will make a recommendation to the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and then the criminal defendant comes back and says, well, the INS is bound to, and people look at the agreement and say, well, no one would have read that to mean that the United States included INS because they were talking about a recommendation to INS. But it, when the government is written in, my, my view is that, that the Third Circuit and the Fourth Circuit um, speak eloquently to that, but I don't see that it's, um, that, that issue is, is presented here given the context in which it arises in D.C. where this is conduct which could only be prosecuted in D.C. courts by the United States. Um, it was going to be the United States attorney or a private prosecutor representing the United States. We had local law that said private prosecutors who sign plea agreements bind the United States, and I would think the converse would be true. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Long. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I think it's very important to be clear about what is properly before the court. This started out as a case about a plea agreement. 
And the petitioner's claim is that his plea agreement with the U.S. attorney barred his criminal contempt proceeding. Uh, he has not made the claim that a private interested party may not bring a criminal contempt proceeding. He has said over no, but and over. the argument is that because a private interested party can't bring it, the party is bringing it on behalf of the United States, and his plea agreement, therefore, uh, uh, is with the United States. Well, I mean, if I could, Mr. Chief Justice, there, there are, I think, several questions in the case, and some of them are actually no longer in dispute, so that will help to simplify a very complicated matter a little bit. One is, according to the question presented, uh, whether the criminal contempt proceeding for violating a civil protective order must be brought in the name of the United States. So actually have United States in the caption. And I think now all the parties agree there's no constitutional requirement that the caption of the case actually say United States. So to the extent that answers the question about what does the plea agreement cover, uh, we don't have a dispute about that. There's no constitutional reason why uh, the Court of Appeals has to be reversed. So the other part of the question, as it's, as it's framed in the question, is does it have to be brought pursuant to the power of the United States? That's not language that's in the Court of Appeals' opinion. I, I, I'm not sure I understand your point. Yes, the caption doesn't have to be styled in a particular name, yes. but the prosecuting person, yes. person whose name is listed, is acting for someone. Yes. Is, is the real party in interest exactly. in the United States. And I agree, that's mostly what we have to talk about this morning, but I'm trying to bracket it with issues that are really not properly in dispute here. One is the caption is not a constitutional issue. Another is, as Petitioner has said over and over again, the actual ability of a private interested party, the question that was left open in Young, under the Constitution, under the Due Process Clause, or under separation of powers, uh, is that constitutional for Ms. Watson to even do this as the representative of the United States or on her own behalf? They have said over and over again they are not raising that question. In their reply brief to the Court of Appeals, they say they in no way challenge that. In their post-argument brief to the Court of Appeals, they say the assertion that they're challenging it is just wrong. In their supplemental brief to this Court at the search stage, they say they declined to raise that question. And even in their reply brief here, they say they have not raised the issue left unresolved in Young. So that is a very important issue. And I think that issue is really not. What you see is that issue? What's the issue that you think? That, that's the issue of whether a private interested party, either on their own behalf or as the representative of the sovereign, can bring a criminal contempt. Oh, what do you mean? On their own, no, not on their own behalf. You mean, that, that, that's a quite different issue. That's yes, the well, issue what that's I, what decided I, below. Whether a private interested party can be authorized to bring the suit on behalf yes, of the sovereign. Yes, what I'm trying to do is narrow down to, yeah, I, I understand, think the but, issue. But you, you, you covered two things. You said whether a private uh, uh, individual can bring it on his own, right. or whether a private individual can be appointed to bring it on behalf of the sovereign. Yes. And I thought it was only only the second of these that's out, that you say is out of the case. You say the first is out of the case, too? No. 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 I think, I, I mean, I think, I think the, all they have conceded is that for purposes of this case, we're going to assume that 
Well, well I, may, I may have given you the wrong answer to their. They have said we are. They have said over and over again. We assume that a private uh, interested party can bring a criminal contempt proceeding, and so we think, given the importance as as representative of the sovereign. Well, I, I think that question is fairly before the court. And nobody doubts so I, I, I didn't think it was an issue that the United States, rather than operating through an assistant U.S. attorney, can appoint you yes, exactly. to prosecution. Exactly. And that's what they don't but, dispute, right? Maybe a different way of making this. Sorry, that's what they don't dispute that. That's the point you were trying to make? Yes. Okay. Um, the, the, uh, I'm sorry. Repeat it for me. I sort of... The point is they are not disputing, and they've said over and over again they're not disputing, that a private interested individual like Ms. Watson, the individual in this case, can bring this proceeding. Now, you know, that may be a, behalf, that's the issue and, that I'm trying and, and the And the issue that I think is before the Court is would that be as a representative of the United States or would that be as a private person? <laughs> okay. Are they, are they, are you saying that it's out of the case that if we say it's on behalf of the United States, they're not challenging that they can do that? Yes. 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 I think they have not challenged that. That's, so and, and if I we say, say they can act on behalf of the United yes. States. And, and I will say there is an oddity to this because in many ways the bigger question is the question that the Court left open in Young. And since that's not been properly raised, not properly decided by the court below, not properly briefed. It is a little odd to be answering this other question of, well, assuming that the private party can do this, would it be in the interest of the United States? In other words, if, in fact, uh, you, you agree or don't agree, I don't know, the government says, and they say, the government of the United States has here, and it can under the Constitution, delegate to a private person the authority to prosecute. Right. There's a big argument against that. Yes. The argument is this would be the one person you can't delegate it to because they're very biased. Right. And my and that is, argument, you say, is not in this case. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So now we have what so, is in the case, right. which is the question of whether leaving that argument out of it. So, so let, me now, let me now address the point that is it, is it a constitutional requirement, no matter what the legislature says, that any criminal contempt proceeding must be brought in the interest of the sovereign and not in the interest of a private party? That may seem like a fairly uh, obvious proposition, but I, I want to submit it's actually much harder, and the, and the Court actually should I, I don't know what you mean by in the interest of. On behalf of? Is that, is that what you mean? Are you saying you acknowledge here that well, it is on behalf of the United States, but you say it doesn't well, have to be in the interest of the United States? Is that it? Well, the, the language that the Court of Appeals used is in the interest of the United States. Who is the real party in interest? Um, well, well, well and, and, I don't know what that means. Are, are you asserting that this suit has been brought on behalf of the United States by your client? No, I want to make an argument that actually the D.C. legislature and the D.C. courts are constitutionally permitted to determine that in this specific situation, the interests of the individual actually predominate over the interests of the government, and there is not a constitutional problem. Why is that even relevant? Why, why do we even get to that? Isn't the question what the parties understood 
the plea agreement to mean? Well, I, I agree with you completely, Justice Alito. The ultimate question is exactly what you say. And we think under any reasonable construction of the plea agreement, it does not bar this proceeding. As Justice Stevens said, these have gone on for — It's highly relevant, I think, because I think you'd like to make the argument, which I'd like to hear, is that forget the United States. The Constitution permits this woman to bring the case as a private citizen. Yes. Now, if you're right about that, the plea agreement drops out yes. because nobody right says about, they made a plea I'm, agreement with her. If I'm so right that about, is the argument that you want to make at yes. some point. Although if I'm wrong, I, I will make that argument, although if I'm wrong, I still think the plea agreement doesn't, doesn't bar this prosecution. But here's well, the argument. Well, with respect, even if the Constitution permits this, if the parties understood the plea agreement to mean that this was going to be barred, then why isn't that the, the end of the matter? Well, it's, it's what a reasonable person would have understood, Justice Alito. When the plea agreement says, crosses out District of Columbia, crosses out Corporation Council, and we're now all agreed that Ms. Watson, in her own name, can bring this proceeding under a statute that authorizes it and has for 20 years. I, mean, I suppose no the argument could be that the, that, the, that the government has no authority under D.C. law to enter into such an agreement. Well, I mean, that, that's to, uh, now we're getting into statutory issues, Justice Alito. I mean, this case is a constitutional case. No such statutory issue was raised or decided by the Court below. Uh, you know, typically this Court treats the D.C. Court of Appeals as, as final, as a practical matter, on issues of D.C. law. So I think that's, that's going off in a completely different direction. But on the issue of... Gee, I've really lost you. What's going off in a different direction? <laughs> really, you just left the, me. the issue of saying, well, as a matter of D.C. statute, there was some problem with this prosecution. I mean, that's, that's really something that... Well, okay, you're, 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 you're asserting that this agreement with the uh, United States Attorney cannot cover this case because your client was not acting on behalf of the United States, but rather in her private capacity. Yes, and let me make that argument. perfectly okay, right? If, if that is a constitutional requirement, it is in Blackstone, we admit that for crimes in general, but we're talking about contempt. But if it's a constitutional requirement, it's got to be in the Constitution someplace. Petitioners say it's because the Constitution uses words like crimes. Well, you know, the Court has been very cautious about implying common law rules, constitutionalizing common law rules because of words in the Constitution. Well, like one common. way you can find it in the Constitution is that we have built a body of law about the obligation of people bringing prosecutions that wouldn't fit within your situation. For, what are the, what's the Brady obligation of your client? Well, and if you'll bear with me, I think the Constitution does answer questions like the Brady question, but it's not from the penumbras and emanations of words like crimes. It's because what are the what are the Brady obligations of your client? Well, I, I think because the way that the way this court has defined criminal contempt does not look to the interest of the party versus the interest of the sovereign. In fact, the court has said over and over again in uh, Bagwell and Hicks and other cases that in all criminal contempt cases, civil and criminal, to some extent, the interest of the sovereign what, is what, like, what are the Brady obligations of your client? The due process says this is a criminal proceeding, Your Honor, so I can explain in a minute. 
and therefore all the uh, due process rights of a for a petty criminal offense apply. And I would say so that your client right. has to provide the um, uh, her husband with a lawyer. Who has to provide a lawyer in this criminal contempt proceeding? The D.C. courts do provide lawyers if the uh, to the defendant. I mean, a very important point here is these are often pro se cases where the woman comes in to say, uh, or the petitioner, it's usually a woman, doesn't But I, I don't know if you've answered the chief's question. He's asked to have a lawyer. Is there a Brady obligation? What other constitutional they, entitlements does they, they come from the due process clause, and if I could have just the court's indulgence for one minute, I think the answer to a lot of these questions is not looking to penumbras and emanations from crimes, but looking at this Court's decisions deciding what is criminal contempt and what is civil contempt. But and as I started get to the Brady, because that was one of the questions I had, too. Let's say we have the, what we'll call a private person as prosecuting. Right. Uh, does that person have a, a, a right to look at all the government files to see if there's any exoneration? Well, I mean, this How is does a, it work? That's what we want to know. This is a determinate sentence. So under this Court's cases, without regard to whether the government's interests are take precedence over the, over the private interests, it's criminal. So you get all the rights that the due process clause gives you in a But how does it work? Does the, does, that, does the person who's bringing the, the, this prosecution have the right to go in and, and look at the, all, all of the files that the police have and the, well, and I, and this the is prosecutor has? That's the only way Brady would work. In this case, the Court said that the Brady rights did apply. I mean, and this is another reason why I would urge the Court not to try to decide a number of very important questions about a very important system that has not really been properly presented in D.C. What do you do about that? Because it's very hard for me to focus on the case, the issue you want me to decide, without well, thinking about the one you don't. And the reason yes, well, is I, I mean, categorize there, there are, It may be that this is the so wrong what do, So what do we do? I mean, I, I think of this as like, like Aeschylus. You have the furies gradually giving way to justice. I yes. mean, private vengeance well, is out. And justice is in, and we have 3,000 years of that, and they're all going to be variations of that theme, and we can think of a 100 arguments. Then, is this special? Well, well, before I can answer that question, I'd like to know whether the government could appoint the private person. After all, there's a check. There's a check against the total furies. It's the government doing it. Now you say, no, but the government can't do it, so but they can do it on their own. Maybe. I don't know. Well, how do I get my — how do I begin to answer these questions bound together, in my mind, uh, in some partial way? Well, par- part of the answer is, of course, that the Court exercises control. Another part of the answer is that the D.C. Legislature, which is exercising delegated legislative authority from Congress, has determined that this is in the public interest. And, you know, a, a third part of it is that we're not granting these private individuals excessive authority. But you want to do that. You see, see, there is no control. You're saying we want the private individuals to have the authority to bring criminal contempt. They're on their own. They decide it. The government has nothing to say about this. It's a totally private matter. Well, but, but, you know, the, the D.C. tried for over a decade to do this with public prosecutors, and there just were not enough resources. So what we're allowing here, if I could take it in problems have no answers. I mean, uh, that doesn't prove anything. Well, Uh, well, there there may be. What 
Do you think that Congress could, could set up a private organization to uh, expend federal funds? We're going to abolish the Department of Education, and we are, are going to give its function to a private organization that will uh, take care of all those things. No good, right? Well, we took, but, but there is a long, long tradition of having private individuals undertake prosecutions of crimes. I mean, on, so if on, you're saying it on behalf on, of on behalf of on yes. behalf of the executive, yes. you're looking for a section of the Constitution. I suggest Article Two, Section One: the executive power shall be vested in a president. Well, but and, but, and just as the executive power includes the power to expend funds appropriated by Congress, so also the executive power, except in the in the instance of necessity, uh, acknowledged by Young, which I think was wrongly decided anyway, uh, except in that one narrow instance. The, the, the power to prosecute belongs to the executive. But, but, Justice Scalia, we're dealing with the District of Columbia. The Constitution does not assign any powers over the district to the executive or to the judicial. Right. Now, the State of California, trying to save money, say we have a very good idea. We're going to pass one law, abolish all the prosecutor's offices, and say wherever there is a victim of crime, that victim will bring the prosecution. Now you really are back. Well, and, and again, I mean, that, there is, is that abundant historical precedent for that. I yeah, mean, there that was. The way before before Escalus. If we ask the framers. The, the, you, you would say that that is constitutional, to have, well, if, have a if, statute that says that all criminal prosecutions will be brought by victims, period. Well, I, I think there would be today serious due process problems to work through with that sort of system. All right. If there are, then why aren't there the same here? Well, I will also say the framers would have understood that to be a perfectly normal system. They would not have thought it was unconstitutional um, because private prosecutions were were common at the time of the framing. Oh, I don't think that's right. Private prosecutions were common at the time of the framing? You have to go back a long way before they were common. Well, I mean, there, that issue is, de- is debated in the briefs, and I, I think it was less common in the colonies in the United States than it was in Britain, but it certainly wouldn't have been regarded as, as unconstitutional. But this is, you know, now we're back to the question that I say really the Court should not decide, because it was never properly read whether this can be done by a private individual at all, even as the representative of the government. So I don't think you should get into that, but if you do, I, I mean, I would do sure it. Why, how we can avoid it? Well, you could wait for a case that presents it, that properly presents it, well, where it's been decided Well, this case properly by. presents the argument that a private party can't bring a criminal prosecution on their, in their own, perhaps their own name they can, but on their own, in their own interest. It always has to be a government interest. That's what the argument yes. is. Yes, and the, that, that is something the Court, we think, could properly decide. But, but Justice Breyer, I saying the answer to that is no, they can bring a claim in their own name. Yes, we, we're arguing two things. They, could, they can bring it in their own name. There's, that's not unconstitutional. And they can certainly bring it as interest. they could certainly bring it as the representative of the government. That's also constitutional, and, and so there are two ways. No, no, but the last question is the one that they're disputing. It can't be in their own interest. Yes, absolutely. And you're saying it can? Yes. Now, answer why. Be- because the D.C. Council said they could do it, so we have a legislature that has said that the interest of the private party here 
takes precedence, and why — and that is not an unconstitutional determination by the legislature. In this Court's criminal contempt cases, the Court has said we don't look to whose interest is paramount or what this, the legislature or the Court says about whose interest is paramount. We recognize that both kinds of contempt, civil and criminal, further the sovereign's interest in vindicating the Court's orders and further the private interest in seeing that that order, which applies particularly to that party, is followed. So you don't look to that at all. You just look to the nature of the punishment. And if it's a determinate sentence versus a coercive sentence, then it's criminal. So that answers all the questions about Brady and what sort of due process. Uh, you, might, you, might, you might say this to answer your question that is here. There are a couple of ways of doing it. One way you would say is, well, don't worry about this so much. If the answer is no, you can still bring your private prosecution, but you've got to get government permission because you're doing it in the way of the government. But if the answer to the question is you can't do either, then you might say, well, why aren't we back to the humanities? And the answer is going to be, well, this is contempt. Contempt is special. I, I don't know whether either or both of those ways would work. So what would you think, since the government's changed its position, of sending this back so some of these things could be worked out? At least we'd have some opinions that would help us. Well, you know, I think that would be an unfortunate result in the sense that, you know, the plea agreement, in our view, doesn't prevent this prosecution on any reasonable interpretation. Uh, we, you know, we also think, for the reasons I've been trying to spell out, that there is no real basis for the Court to hold that it is unconstitutional, only in the criminal contempt setting, uh, for the D.C. legislature to find that the private interest here justifies allowing the private party to bring this action, but it's still criminal, because it's a determinate sentence. You get all the due process just as you would as if the government brought it, get all the due process rights, which, in fact, the defendant did get here. Well, unless you think it's a violation of due process for an interested party to be able to criminally prosecute uh, someone at their, at their discretion. Well, and that, and, and, you know. You want to see bargain with, a, with an interested party? Well, but, but, Mr. Chief Justice and Justice Scalia, I mean, this is a system that is in all the states uh, it's not just domestic violence. It's child custody. It's child support. The amicus briefs say this is for criminal, criminal contempt prosecution. Is, well, well, but yes, cr criminal contempt for violation of court orders about domestic violence, about child custody, about child support. Those were well, they, there can be order to show cause. But you, you're, you're representing that every state allows a private person to have a criminal prosecution for criminal contempt. Well, the, the amicus brief says 19 allow, at this point, 19 allow um, you to file a motion. These things are typically begun by motion, not a charging document. Well, and to say, a motion is, is different. Then, then, the, court yes. decide, then, the, then the, the court decides based on the uh, uh, position of, of, the, of the defendant, of the person who's charged with contempt, whether yes. not to proceed. And the court can certainly appoint a prosecutor and does in many states. Absolutely, Justice Kennedy. And that's really what we're asking. I mean, if you think about these situations, many thousands of cases, most of these individuals have no lawyers. They're pro se. A civil order is entered about domestic violence, child custody, child support. It's violated, or the individual thinks it's violated. What do they do? They come to the court on their own. So now they're pro se. So now maybe we're 
in, a, in you know, the, the Furies and Young and, and problems. But this is to make the system work, we at least, I submit, have to allow those individuals to come to the court and file a motion, even though they're interested, and say that somebody's violating the order, Judge, you should do something about it. Well, that's, that's a different matter. I mean, no, that's, no. that's why isn't it a different no, I mean, that's, what happened, in, that's okay. what happened in this case. Now, it so happens this woman was represented by the D.C. Attorney General, who is a well, public prosecutor. But I, so now you're into the question of what counts as a prosecution. Well, yes, and there I, yes. Again, I'm at sea. I, I don't know what the well, authority and if is. Well, if I could just do it step by step. I mean, in this case and in thousands, tens of thousands of other cases, the first step is just allowing that motion to be filed. And if you don't allow that, if you say that's unconstitutional, the entire system will, will blow up. So if you at least get to that, then we say, well, the judge looks at it and says, well, you know, civil's not appropriate here because the violation is over. If I'm going to punish this, it's going to have to be a determinate sentence. That's criminal. At that point, under this Court's cases, due process requires all sorts of things to protect the defendant. He gets a lawyer or the other. Now, I would say you don't have, the Constitution doesn't require that there be a lawyer appointed to prosecute every one of these. So that would be my submission. So let the individual come in and file a motion. Let the Court look at it. Don't require a prosecutor to be appointed, interested or disinterested. Uh, and then at that point, if the court is exercising sufficient control over this, to say that if, if the person, the woman, happens to have a lawyer, that lawyer has to just stand aside and can't play any. Is that the situation here in D.C.? Can, can, uh, when the woman comes in, can the uh, judge look it over and say, Ah, you don't have anything here. I'm not going to. I'm not going to allow you to go ahead. Well, you know, we have no record on any of this, Justice Scalia. Because how do you understand? How does the statute read? As I understand well, it, it's not up to the judge to decide whether there's enough there to allow her to go forward or to appoint somebody on his own. She, she's the prosecutor. It's up to her whether there's the way the statute and the court rules read is you file a motion, not a not an indictment or an information, a motion to hold the person in contempt. As I understand it, it is set down for a hearing. I mean, that's sort of the way the family court works. So they, they will have a hearing, and the judge will look at it, and we'll see what's going on. And a hearing on whether she can prosecute or a hearing it's, on, on whether know, he's going to be guilty? I'm very uncomfortable. I mean, I have gone and observed one of these, and I've talked to one of the judges, but none of this is, is in the record, Justice Scalia. I mean, I think what they typically do is try to figure out what it's about, whether it's civil or criminal. If it's criminal, they would appoint a lawyer for the, for the defendant, and then they would take it from there. But it, you know, this private, is a uh, prosecutor, however you want to describe her, could she enter into a plea agreement with the defendant? Well, they, they can agree to withdraw the No, the she charges. said, look, you could be subject up to 180 days. I'll agree, and you'll plead guilty to 30 days. Again, I'm very — none of this is in the record. I, my understanding is that doesn't happen, although I honestly am not sure. I think it would be up to the court to, to — or, or pay $1,000 to your victim, which is me. Well, you know, I, I have no information about whether that sort of thing happens or how the court would treat it. But I think my basic point is — you know, this is a very important system, not just to the District of Columbia, but to the whole country. And, the details, and the details matter. And to change it to a system where we now say there have to but be But in the lawyers. rest of the country, it's a, this is the point Justice Scalia was making. In the rest of the country, it's a state system. 
Well, but, but D.C., and, Your and Honor, is, is like a state in the sense that separation of well, powers that's, do not apply. that's the question that I don't know that we have enough information in the record about. Well, but is this really, is this prosecution like a state? That's, I think, the Solicitor General's position, which is well, but it's, it's on behalf of the local government, not on the behalf of the federal government as a sovereign. I think I mean, that's if, what the state If you look, at, if you look at this Court's decision in Palmore, I mean, we're dealing with an Article I court, the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. It's not an Article III court. To the extent that the sovereign, sovereign's interest is at stake here, it's the interest of that Article I court. Is there somewhere I can look to see what happens? All I can find in this long law is that a violation of the order is a contempt. Fine. No yes. problem. Yes. And then the only word about the petitioner, it says a petitioner is entitled to relief under this chapter, which contains about 50 different things. And, and it doesn't say what kind of relief. It doesn't say how you get relief. It doesn't say whether you're just asking the, all those things you raise. So how do I find out what well, is actually the system? The, you mean the relief for contempt? It doesn't that, say that. It says in an earlier part of this statute, which goes on for six pages, seven pages, it says a petitioner has a right to seek relief under this subchapter. Now, that contains civil contempt. It contains how you get protective orders. It contains right. a lot of things that are absolutely non-controversial. Right. So I'm trying to figure out what is the system. Well, I, the I, think, I think the honest answer, Justice Breyer, is you can, you can find some of these things by looking around. But since we've been talking about issues that were not properly litigated or, and not decided and we don't have a well-developed record, some of these things are just not going to be available. And, and again, we think, you know, this case started out about a plea agreement. It's really a small case. We're now talking about these great big issues. We think the plea agreement doesn't bar this under any reasonable construction. And so the right result is either to dismiss the cases improvidently granted or to affirm. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. General Kagan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there are two questions properly raised in this case. Petitioner is right about one. Respondent is right about the other and the disposition. There are a couple of questions that are extremely interesting. I can see why the Court is interested in them, but were not properly raised in the case, and this Court should not decide them. What Petitioner is right about is that in this criminal contempt action, Ms. Watson, respondent, was and must have been exercising sovereign power, that she was acting as a state actor for purposes of the Constitution. What respondent is right about? Whose state power was she acting on behalf of? The way we understand this, Justice Sotomayor, is that respondent was exercising sovereign power on behalf of the Article I Court, the D.C. Court, which, of course, is partly a local court, but is exercising power whose initial source, original source, is Congress. So she is exercising sovereign power in order to vindicate the Court's order, the order of, uh, of restraint. Courts don't, don't have power to incarcerate people. I mean, if you're prosecuting for uh, a criminal offense, you're, you're exercising more than the power of the Court. Uh, I, I don't believe that that's the case, Justice Scalia. Imagine respondent as essentially doing the same function 
that an appointed person would do in Young. There, of course, the Court appointed the person to prosecute a contempt. Here, the respondent is essentially doing the same thing, is acting in order to prosecute a contempt on the Court and to vindicate no, the Court's — nobody asserted in Young that the prosecutor appointed by the Court was only exercising the power of the Court. Well, Surely it was the power of the government. That, that, the, that the prosecutor was exercising. Now, the Court was given the power to appoint that prosecutor, but I, I would think it's extraordinary to say that there's nothing but the Court's power in play. Well, the Court is surely part of the government. And in the end, this is power of the United States. The Court is created through power of the United States. It's an Article I Court. And so Respondent is no doubt exercising sovereign power and exercising it on behalf of the United States ultimately. And why doesn't uh, an agreement by the United States uh, not to prosecute uh, carry the day? Yes. So this goes to the second question, which I think Respondent is right. And the reason is that when uh, a single U.S. Attorney's Office says that the government will decide to drop a certain set of charges, that U.S. Attorney's Office, we believe, is, uh, uh, is speaking for itself, unless there is some indication that it is speaking more widely in such a way that will bind other parts of the government. That's, that's absolutely startling. But uh, the different U.S. attorneys all work for your boss, right? They work for the attorney general. Uh, but, but how can one part of the attorney general agree to something that doesn't bind the other part of the attorney general? The United States government is a, a, a complicated place, and the fact that — Take uh, the word for it. And the fact <laughs> — And the fact that the Southern District of New York agrees to do one thing uh, does not bind, for example, the INS, does not bind uh, the — Maybe or maybe not, but surely it it binds the New Jersey U.S. Attorney. Just think about it. The the U.S. Attorney from the Southern District says, look, you agree to go to jail for 10 years, and I will drop these three charges. Done. Then the U.S. Attorney for New Jersey can come in and prosecute under those three charges? Uh, assuming that the U.S. Attorney has juris- in, this, yeah, in the yeah, second yeah. office has jurisdiction, and assuming that the plea agreement does not say anything to suggest that the uh, that it should be read more broadly, I think the answer is yes. Well, but how do you Mr. get? Chief I mean, you're Justice, a defendant. You've got to go to all 50, more than fifty, all the U.S. Attorney's offices, and say, "Will you agree to this?" And well, to sign y- off. Y- y- um, Mr. Chief Justice, even if you're right, I think that we prevail. There are two views in the court system. One is the Second and Seventh Circuit, and and they take the position that I've taken, which is that the default position is that the contracting party binds only the contracting party, and that the plea agreement uh, needs to say something in order to apply more broadly. Well, it can't do that. If the U.S. attorney in New Jersey has the authority to prosecute this, the U.S. attorney in New York can't say, oh, and by the way, I bind all the other U.S. attorneys. Well, the U.S. Attorney in New York could uh, assume — presumably that U.S. Attorney will know who else might have jurisdiction over the underlying conduct and would go and get an agreement from those other U.S. Attorneys. But unless the U.S. Attorney does that, under one approach, uh, the agreement bars only the contracting entity itself. Well, but I even if you are right — that in this particular case — the U.S. Attorney could have entered into a settlement agreement that would have bound the, the respondent. We actually don't think that that's right, 
Justice Stevens. We think that, in fact, the U.S. Attorney did not bind the respondent, but we don't think it could have bound the respondent. And it goes back to my uh, answer to Justice Sotomayor, because respondent here is representing the D.C. court system. And so the U.S. Attorney really would have had — a distinction between the D.C. circuit — the D.C. and the United States. Yes. Ultimately, the D.C. court system is an actor that's wielding United States authority. But, but, but it's a very agree, different — But you would agree, I take it, that the attorney for the D.C. — the District of Columbia could have bound respondent. Somebody could bind respondent without respondent even knowing about it. That's what I'm asking. I, I think only the D.C. court — could have prevented uh, respondent from going forward. I and think I have to agree with you that uh, to accept this argument that the uh, uh, that the prosecutor here is an agent just of the court, just of the D.C. court, not an agent of the executive. Um, if uh, who would you like the the person to be an agent of, <laughs> Justice Scalia? I well. I'm not making the argument. questions the other way. <laughs> I, I apologize. I, I, I don't I know that courts have ever asserted that they themselves have the power to prosecute. Well, I, I do think that that's the situation that we find in Young, where a, a court appoints a person to prosecute a contempt on behalf of the court. On, and I think on behalf of the court, on behalf of the government. And that's why Young said you should offer it first to the United States Attorney. Be, be, and only if he won't bring it. Then you can appoint somebody else to bring it. But the, 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 the prosecutor is not the court. My God, what a terrible situation. The prosecutor is the court. The judge is the court. Well, I, I do think Young is different, Justice Scalia, because Young was a separation of powers case. This case is not because it arises in D.C. In Young, absolutely, the judge has to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office first. But that's not the case here because normal separation of powers principles are not in application in D.C. Isn't it the case that only the U.S. Attorney could prosecute for, the, for, for, for this crime? Could, could the D.C. Uh, Attorney General or, or whatever the, the name of it, what, counsel, uh, uh, prosecute for this felony? Uh, Justice Scalia, I don't believe that's entirely clear. I think that the court could ask the D.C. Attorney General uh, to prosecute the crime in the same way that the court in Young asked the oh, U.S. Attorney. Because it's all up to the court. The court's the, court's the big prosecutor. Right? Well, just as in say, I know you dissented in Young, Justice Scalia, but just as the court in Young goes to the U.S. Attorney first, and when is when the court is told no, the court can appoint its own independent prosecutor. Essentially, that's what ha- is happening here. That the well, court if, is the, if there were a finding of, of, of innocent not, or not guilty. Uh, by this prosecutor, could the uh, official prosecutor then have prosecuted again, or would there be double jeopardy? If, if, you're, if you're saying they're somehow separate, does the double jeopardy clause apply? Well, this Court held in Dixon that the double jeopardy clause does apply because they're all no, exercising but, but, power. But, but, well, but that, that was the same authority. Yes, and they all are exercising power from the United States. Dixon involved this very statute. So you don't think this is a Bartkus-like case, like Bartkus versus Illinois? I th- I th- I, I'm not familiar with that case, Justice Kennedy, but I do think that the double jeopardy that, clause... That a, a state prosecution doesn't bar a later federal prosecution. Yes, that, that's exactly right, because ultimately all of these people are exercising power that comes from the same source, which is the United States right, government. Is your argument the broad argument? 
that uh, the Chief Justice was talking about, that we have a, a man who drives in a car from Baltimore to rob a bank in Washington, and the U.S. Attorney in Washington gives him a piece of paper which says, I will not prosecute you for this now or in the future. And then suddenly the U.S. Attorney in Baltimore prosecutes it. Are you saying that that is barred or not barred? That's the broad argument. Well, under or are several, you making a narrow argument? Under several circuits' law. Well, I'm just asking you your position on that. It's hand the, does this piece of paper from the U.S. Attorney in Washington bar prosecution by the U.S. Attorney in Baltimore? I have a yes princi- or no? I have a principal position and I have a backup position. <laughs> My principal position is yes, it does for the reason that I gave to the Chief Justice. To the extent that there's skepticism. It does the bar. It does. The, the, the default rule is that the bar is only as to the office that, um, that uh, executes the agreement. Counsel, could I, could I ask you, uh, could a, a 1983 or, I guess, Bivens action be brought against Ms. Watson? The defendant, you know, it's, it turns out he's not guilty and he thinks there was malice in the process. Could he bring a, a Bivens action against her? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I've, I've, I've not thought about that question. I am completely clear as to your, the question that you asked to Mr. Long, which is, does she have Brady obligations? She does have Brady obligations. Yeah. She was held She's to Brady state obligations. Actor. She's acting on behalf either of you, the United States or the District of Columbia. Therefore, she can be sued uh, directly and be personally liable. She, it, it is absolutely right that she is a state actor for constitutional purposes. And she was treated as such throughout this litigation. To go back to Justice Breyer's point, may I? Uh, Yes, uh, briefly. Justice Breyer's question, the Chief Justice's question, um, uh, even circuits that apply a default rule whereby the government is the entire government and there needs to be limiting things in the agreement, I think if you look at this agreement, you will find those limiting things, both in the cross-outs, in the caption, Uh, and in the particular promises that the United States government has made, which applies really only to the United States Attorney's Office. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, General. Uh, Ms. Frankfurt, you have seven minutes remaining. Thank you. I just want to say in response both to to, um, Mr. Long's comment about a lack of record as to what actually occurred or um, the Solicitor General's comment about whether or not Ms. Watson was treated as a state actor. I actually think there is a, a, a decent record in this case that what occurred was not a motion to request the court to issue a show cause, but in fact a, a motion that requested an, a, that triggered a ministerial act, which was acted, used as the charging document, which the judge believed she had no discretion, and the. Assistant Attorney General, who was representing the petitioner, believed she had no discretion to control. Ms. Watson was treated as bringing the action on her own behalf. That's what the lower court held as a factual matter, and I think it's quite supported by the record. Could I ask you this? The, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals said, we are satisfied that no objectively reasonable person could understand that Mr. Robertson's plea agreement bound Ms. Watson and precluded her contempt proceeding against Mr. Robertson, if we accept that, is there any other issue in this case? If you ex- the, the, yes, the issue is whether she could constitutionally bring the case on her own. And did you preserve that? If if Mr. If Mr. Robertson had said, "I understand. This only means that uh, I'm not going to be charged with a a criminal offense 
by the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, and it has no application to this civil contempt proceeding. Now, we absolutely um, raise that because our argument from from the very beginning was she can't constitutionally be representing herself in this proceeding. If this is happening constitutionally, she represents the United States. And if she represents the United States, then our plea agreement bars it because our plea agreement was with the government. It indicated the government will not, cons- will not pursue and any reasonable person in a process. That's a separate question. For the first question is what was agreed to under the plea agreement, right? Yes, and at the time that we signed the plea agreement, there was no precedent for the notion of a private person bringing a criminal action in her own name, interest, and on her own behalf. No one would have contemplated that such a thing was constitutional because it, you know, back until appeals of felony. Just, just so I understand what's before us, you preserved, you're saying, you're saying you preserved the issue that even if your client fully understood that this plea agreement had no application to a criminal contempt proceeding. He preserved the argument of, that he could contest the criminal contempt proceeding uh, on the ground that it would be unconstitutional. I'm sorry. I, I am not, I'm not sure that I'm um, understanding or that uh, my words have been misinterpreted. It's certainly not the case that when my — that the reasonable interpretation of that plea agreement was that it wouldn't apply to a criminal contempt proceeding. The no, only no, I understand that. I understand there's the contract issue. But did you — in the lower court, did you argue even if he gave that up under the plea agreement, the criminal contempt proceeding still could not be brought? Even if he gave up the right of a private person to prosecute on her own behalf, any Even agreement if he didn't get boxing. that, a bar to that under the plea agreement, the, the contempt proceeding would still be barred for some other reason. Did you make that argument? I am not sure that I can answer that we did because I'm not sure that I, I understand the question. I, I know that we did make the argument that it could only have lawfully be brought on behalf of the sovereign and that the sovereign was the United States. And so our view was if, if this Court views it the way the lower Court did, which is as an action between private parties, then it's unconstitutional and under Gompers You, you did raise, uh, undoubtedly, you say, the point that the only way in which uh, she could be the prosecutor was as an agent of the United States. Absolutely. And that it was unconstitutional for her to, to, to represent herself. Absolutely. I think we wrote the words, you know, whoever stands in the well of the courtroom doesn't matter who that person is. That person represents the sovereign. That's the only constitutional way. If it's viewed that way, it's barred by the plea agreement. If it's not viewed that way, as the lower court construed the local statute to permit then Gompers versus Buckstove says there's no authority there to impose a criminal penalty. And we would ask the Court to reverse. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>